So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Ho, 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 man fans. Ollie Man here with our annual Christmas spectacular of the modern man. I hope you are very well. If you're already at home for the holidays, hooray! As last year, we have a truly memorable festive foxhole for you at the end of the episode. It includes some replica lady parts and some pubic lice droppings. So do stay with us for that. Uh, But our main feature today is an interview with a guy they call Mr Panto. Uh, He's written more massive commercially staged pantomimes than anyone else ever. So if if you want to know why Panto, (laughs) basically, why do millions of people flock every year to see the catchphrases and the cross-dressing and the puns and the slapstick and the pop songs, Um, he will explain all, and he's a very entertaining man. Uh, He gives a real insight as well into how those big Hollywood stars, David Hasselhoff, Pamela Anderson, Priscilla Presley, how they end up in regional outposts of Britain being booed at and throwing out sweets. Um, This week you will also learn why you should keep your kids away from your vice pops, how the Fonz got Steve Guttenberg to go to Bromley, and you'll hear what it sounds like when Ollie Peart puts his finger up a silicon arsehole. Merry Christmas. On this week's Modern Man, we got Mickey Rooney to come over, and the first place we put him was Sunderland. Hollywood stars, regional theatres and slapstick comedy. What's the recipe for a perfect panto? It looks like sex bisto. And jingle your balls, it's a festive foxhole. But first, it's the man anyone would like to have coming down their chimney this Christmas Eve. It's Ollie Peart. Hello, Ollie. Hello, Ollie. You've got our trends for the festive season. What's first? Automation. Mm -hmm. Nobody has any time anymore, Ollie. I don't know if you noticed that, but life is busier than it's ever been. It's hectic. There's lots going on. It's work, life, work, 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 life, work. It's rare that I ever feel you tapping into my inner monologue, but you've just succeeded. What you can do about it, Ollie, is bots. I've been running a little personal experiment. Uh-huh. And I've been running a bot on my Instagram account. Oh, I'm disappointed. No. Until then, I thought this was going to be the film Multiplicity with Michael Keaton. Did you ever see that? No, I don't know what you're talking about. It was Harold Ramis's ill-advised but understandable follow-up to uh, Groundhog Day. Okay. He had to clone himself because he was too busy. Still yeah. had time f- to make beautiful love to Andy McDowell, but also be a successful scientist. Right. But the uh, machine went wrong, and some of the copies came out not very well, so one of them was like not particularly in great mental shape. Oh, hang on, I think I've seen this film. And there's one like really good at making sandwiches or something. Yes, exactly, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I know, I know. I was so, hoping you'd cloned yourself. Well, I kind you of have. You haven't, you've done something on an Instagram account. Uh, yeah, but I kind of have in digital form. Okay. I read this article, and this guy basically was researching influencers, so social media influencers. What he wanted to highlight is that actually it's a, it's a really carefully choreographed industry. So, you know you see on Instagram those beautiful bowls of granola where all the like the raspberries are laid out and all the nice like pecan nuts and all that kind of stuff yeah there are agencies that actually take those photos and sell them to these influencers because of course they don't have time to do that they're too busy promoting nike or something wow i didn't realize okay see i'm cynical enough to think that when they post their breakfast cereal online they have got a food stylist there Mm mm-hmm I didn't realise it might not actually be their breakfast cereal. No, it's like it's like stock photo. What a weird meta industry! Is I know that? It's, it's completely weird, and there's an entire uh, industry around it which is completely mad. You know, managers and all this kind of stuff. But what I'm using, I'm using an app called Instagress, which anybody can use this this app. Mm-hmm. And for three days of bot usage, it will cost you one dollar ninety nine, which is I don't know. Five million quid or something. And what it does is it will like, follow, unfollow, and comment on your behalf based on criteria that you set. I would not trust that. No. and Have you look, got this running on your Ollie Peart Instagram? It's doing it right now. Yeah. As we, as we speak. As we speak. And I have notifications coming through all the time. So uh, people are getting comments from you saying, hey man, really cool, awesome cornflakes, and it's not you. Sometimes the comment's just a smiley face emoji. 
Sometimes it's just awesome, or that's nice, that looks good. And Doesn't what you... this make you feel like a shallow, no, because I'm doing hollow it, ring I... of a human being? I think it is a yeah, completely hollow... what about the people that you're defrauding, who think they're having a great interaction with you? I'm not defrauding them, because what happens is my no, cop... They think you really are, like, smiley about their dog, and you're not. You've never no, even seen it. Their bot thinks that I'm smiley about their dog, because what I get immediately back is a comment from them saying, thanks, Ollie Peer, and it's always exactly the same comment in return back from the comment that my bot has posted. A bot is talking to another bot on Instagram and plumping up the whole thing to look like we're all interacting with one another when we're not. God, I really didn't think 2016 could get any worse, but you've just ended it with the most uh, damning indictment do you know what's where insane society as well? is going. It, do, what's insane is it works, and I'm trying to... Hide. No, it doesn't. No, Computers in, talking to each other does not work. No, in terms of... It's it, chilling. It's all about the numbers, right? So, like, uh, the reason I wanted to investigate it is because in my industry, it's all about how many followers you have, how many likes you have, and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's a big part of it anyway. Mm. So I thought... I want to prove that it's all bullshit and you should stop listening to that. I think I've added like 300 followers onto my Instagram account in seven days. Yeah, but if they're all bots, by doing nothing. so what? Yeah, but they don't know that they're bots. The bots and, don't and they know are. that they're bots. No, but you realise the mad world we're no, moving No, 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 but the accounts are real accounts. So I still post real images. The people's accounts, they still post real in- images as well. But the interaction, the follow, the comment, all that kind of stuff is completely false. I mean, I'm staggered. Look, there are legitimate Instagram, Twitter and Facebook users. Of course there are. I'm just highlighting that actually there's a really carefully choreographed industry behind the whole thing. So if you see something and it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Okay, what else have you got for us this week? One-handed gaming. Okay. Super Mario Run has been launched. Oh, is it out? I think I predicted on the show earlier this year when we were talking about Pokemon Go, I was like, that'll be massive, Super Mario. And actually, doesn't seem to have really caught the same zeitgeist. Yeah, I think probably because it costs eight quid. Right. So it's quite expensive when, you know, in mobile gaming terms. Yeah, but it's for people in their 30s, really, isn't it? So in a way, that shouldn't matter. I, I should feel okay about spending eight quid on Super Mario, but I haven't. Why haven't I? I mean, it's not that great actually have you played it yeah i've got it on my phone and yes i have paid the eight pounds for it as well what's it like do you know what it looks amazing it's really bright and colorful and it's like it's eight bit without being eight bit if that makes sense so it looks really exactly yeah um so it's got all the sort of like familiar uh characters and all this kind of stuff so it's like it's great to to look at but actually gameplay is rubbish i think they've opted to make it one-handed so you, you can play the entire game one-handed so he automatically runs and over some of the things he automatically jumps over them as well right mm. which is just weird yeah i'm guessing the idea being that if you're on the train or you're out and about you can just kind of, it's quite easy to play but the other thing is they don't let you play it offline and what i mean by that is you need a wi-fi connection to play the game i also heard that the reason for that was anti-piracy Apparently it's harder to fake a copy of the game if it needs to be online all the time because you're constantly in touch with Nintendo's servers to make it work. But that seems like a really niche thing. Like, I Yeah, mean, I, d- I, d- I don't see that being a problem. For that audience, yeah, like exactly. I say, blokes in their 30s who played Mario 20 years ago, they're happy to pay the eight quid. They're not going to pirate it anyway. It'd yeah. be better to have a game that worked when you're on the tube, wouldn't it? Exactly. And also, even if you have a really good 4G connection, you still can't play it. That doesn't count as online. You literally need a Wi-Fi connection. Why make it one-handed if you can only use it in a place where you're more likely to be using two hands? Do you know what I mean? Like, It's like, if you're going to make it one-handed so you can use it on the tube, make it so you can play it on the tube. But you've chosen one-handed gaming as a trend, so do you think this is actually going places? Yeah, I do, yeah. I do actually think, because playing it one-handed, I can totally see the advantage of me being on a train and being able to play it one-handed. Final trend of the week, Holly Pitt. Things Internet. Uh-huh. You've probably heard of the Internet of Things, haven't you? I have, yeah, and this sounds a little bit like a shit attempt to make it come back again, even though clearly, you know, it's going to be years before everyone has web-connected fridges, because why? There's not been a lot of news floating about in the last week or so, so I thought I'd scour Kickstarter, and I found... Don't reveal your process. <laughs> I found a, a product called the Rocketbook Everlast Notepad. Okay. And what these guys have done is they've completely reinvented the notepad. And I thought, how can you completely reinvent the notepad? But they have. As in the pen and paper notepad. Yeah. That does not need reinventing. Ah, but I think... No, it doesn't on- need reinventing. They're onto something. Unlike other Internet of Things or like reinventing traditional devices. So like the Kindle, for example, reinvented the book, but actually it wasn't a tactile. Uh, waste of time, Kindle. No one bought one of those. No, yeah. I mean, What's they were really popular. Then, they're really popular, yeah. but it hasn't affected, you know, print book sales. These guys, what they've done is they've created a notepad that works in exactly the same way as a normal notepad. So you use a pen. It is paper, but it is smart. 
So the idea is you take a note and yep. what it automatically syncs with your phone. The paper itself is a polyester composite, right? And it feels like paper, looks like paper, and you write on it with a normal pen. Mm. But you have to use a pilot friction line pen, which apparently you can get in W.O. Smith and all this kind of stuff, right? Mm. And you write on it and it bonds to the paper as it would do normally. But then, if you get a wet towel, something like that, it will rub off. But hold So what's it doing? Wait, so it's completely reusable, so you can use it like as much as you want. Okay, I mean, why not just get another notepad? Why, this isn't better than a notepad so far. Well, it is saving the environment for a start, but then... Well, not if it's using a polymer bit of paper rather than just something made from a tree. Yeah, but you only need to use one. You need to buy one. Uh, but what you do, right, so it comes in an app. Right. And then at the bottom left of the page, yeah. there's a QR code, and then it scans... Oh, everyone's favourite bit of technology, a QR code. It's actually found, so u- much it's found a use for a QR code. Has it? Because it automatically scans it, and it will store it in a location of your choice based on a category of your choosing. Right. Okay, but I, I've got a little game as well. I thought I'd play with you. Right, about notebooks? Uh, no, it's about the Internet of Things. Oh, about Things Internet, the thing you just made up. Yeah, Brilliant. and you've got to guess whether they're made up or real. Yes, okay. You ready? Yeah. The egg tray. I've got to guess whether it's a real thing you can buy on the Internet. Yes. That is, is it, itself connected to the Internet. That is connected to the Internet. And is there a smart egg tray, is what you're asking me? Yes. Yes, the answer is yes, there is. There is. Yeah, of course there is. It tells you when you're running out of eggs. Right, next. The Facebook bin. Um, uh, it posts a picture of yeah. what you've just thrown on the bin on Facebook. Uh, yes, I believe it. Yeah, yeah it does exist. Yeah, I believe it. The alert shirt. No, that's the shit name you made it up. No, that's true. It's oh, a okay. shirt that vibrates every time a player from a team that you support in rugby is tackled. Literally no one has bought one of those. No, probably not. It's probably bullshit. Weather sunglasses. They tell you if it's sunny or not. Now, the thing is, right, we're at the point in the list where certainly <laughs> it would be one you've made up. But actually, that is plausible. Yeah. So I'm going to go with my gut go on. and say it's real. No, of course it isn't. Yeah. I mean, it probably is, but it isn't. Yeah. I knew that, but it sounds real. Well done. Anyway, that's it. I've only got that's four. It's brilliant. Yeah. Wow. God. I don't, can I just why say why are you an so... influencer, Ollie Pitt? I mean, it's a mystery, isn't can it? Can I say why the list is so short? There's so many shitty, stupid Internet of Things things yeah. that to invent one that is stupid is so hard. Invent one now. Go. And I bet it exists. Invent an Internet of Things product that doesn't like exist. That. Um, a pepper shaker that um, tells you when you've run out of pepper. Great. Someone Google that. I bet it exists. Okay. Merry Christmas, Ollie. Merry Christmas. Ho, 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 ho. Now, if you live in the UK, there is a very good chance that right now, not too far away from where you live, there is a massive theatre playing a sold-out production written by my next guest. But it's not Alan Akebourne or Andrew Lloyd Webber. It is an actor you've probably never heard of. His name is Eric Potts, and he writes an astonishing 10 pantomime scripts per year, which all get performed, and then he plays the dame in one of them. There is nothing about panto he doesn't know. I went to a rehearsal studio in Manchester to meet him. I never expected Panto to kind of dominate my, my working life. It, it, when I started doing Panto, uh, I found myself in the first few years when I was appearing as whatever character it was, suggesting gags. And the director would say, oh, yeah, 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 let's put that in there. Mm. And I got to the stage a few years in, I thought, hang on, I'm writing half this panto and someone else is getting rather a nice lump of money for it. So the next year I said, well, can I write it this year? And um, it worked very well. So then I then went on to start writing pantomimes. And then when the company that I work for at the moment, First Family Entertainment, one of the biggest producers in the country, uh, was formed, I um, had known and had worked with previously the chief executive. And he asked if I would come along and be part of the team. So now I write 10 pantomime scripts every year. Which is uh, astonishing. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, a lot of people don't realise it's a. I mean, perhaps not fifty-two week a year job, but a sort of forty week a year. Job. It's pretty full on. Yeah, yeah. We, we sort of have a, a bit of a rest at the end of the panto season, mid January. Sure. Um, and then February, we're all back in the office in Covent Garden, and we're starting the process again of casting, of budgeting, uh, and of writing. 
And people don't realize either, and this is a strength of the company that you work for, I guess, and mm. their rivals as well. They don't realize there are only a few Panto producers that produce all the big family Pantos. Yeah. Why is that? Why does it make more sense to consolidate them all together like that and not have independent local theaters saying, right, this is our big flagship show of the year, let's do it ourselves? Because uh, local theaters would then have to build their own set. They'd have to make their own costumes, whereas they can strike a deal with one of the Panto producers who have, as we have, we've got this huge, we call it our Aladdin's Cave, this enormous <laughs> warehouse in Nottingham, um, just full of all our sets and costumes and props and special effects and magic illusions and everything that we have. And the theatre can do a deal and say, what well, you want to, to come in, we need an Aladdin this year, can you do it? And they do a split, do all the finance stuff. And it works out best for both companies. We can produce an absolutely stunning show and they get a show that they don't have to build everything for. And then, as does happen a lot with um, regional repertory theatres who do produce their own show, Mm. they spend a fortune building the set, making the costumes. And most of the set, certainly, they'll try and hold on to the costumes, but most of the set ends up in a skip Mm -hmm. the second week of January because it's actually more expensive to store it than to build another one at the end of the the following year. And and what are the essential ingredients you need to deliver to satisfy a panto audience? Uh, Well, I I have a sort of two-pronged approach. First of all, people take their children to pantomimes or encourage their families to go to pantomimes because they want the children to have the same experience as they had as children 25, 30 years, whatever, in the past Mm. 60 years of their grandparents, whatever. And if you mess around with that... They go, oh, hang on, that's not how I remember it. Mm. They want the same routines. They want the same corny jokes, the same call and response. That doesn't mean to say you can't update it and put in fantastic effects and things, because the kids, <laughs> that's what they expect. You know, they're on uh, Xboxes and the rest of it for you know a good part of the year. And if you give them a very two-dimensional thing, oh, well, it didn't have any flashes and bangs. So you've got to update it, but it's got to be a recognisable, I believe, traditional Panto. Yeah, it's funny you say two-dimensional because one of your pantos I know actually involves 3D glasses. Oh yeah, it? yeah. We in fact we've got two, two uh, 3D sequences, and it's amazing. It's been a learning curve for me as well. What we can now be achieved on stage uh, in the way of 3D, and we do um, give every audience member their own pair of 3D glasses, and we have we the the screen that we need to um, project this 3D sequence on. They cost twenty thousand pounds each, and we've got two of them. It's a big investment, but if the audience go out at the end of the day going, oh, my God, that was amazing. And it's true. I did that show for a good number of years where we have this fantastic underwater 3D sequence and you've got sharks leaping out at you and all the rest of it. And, you know, we're working our socks off for two hours and invariably all the reviews go, oh, but the most fantastic 3D sequence. <laughs> all right, well, thanks. That's really great. But you've, you've got to balance all these special effects, pyros and everything, you know, with, and I, I've got on my desk where I do my writing. Uh, It used to be a laminated piece of paper on the wall until Mr Bloom from CBeebies gave me a lovely present, who I worked with a few years and I'm working with him again next year, of a gorgeous piece of oak with a gold plaque on it and just the word adventure. And I told Ben, who plays Mr Bloom, along with all the other uh, cast members one year, that that is the basis of any panto. Adventure. It's got to be an adventure. Onto which you hang the music, the pop songs, the comedy, the old routines, everything. But the main thrust has got to be a real clear, concise and exciting adventure. And then there's casting. You know, you are actually, as well as being Mr. Panto in terms of writing all the scripts, (laughs) you also play the dame uh, in one production that you've written every year. Yeah. This year you were in Aladdin in Manchester, yeah. and I was just very interesting. I was looking at the flyer upstairs. It is the classic combination of sort of something for the dad, something for the teen, something for the kids, something for the grandmas, isn't yeah. it? you've got to tick the boxes. So course, you've got yeah. uh, Ben Adams out of A1. Yeah. You've got John Thompson, long-standing comedian, actor, fast show, all that. Exactly, and current series of Cold Feet. Right, indeed. Yeah. Sherry Hewson, who soap star, right, basically. Yeah, soap star and Benidorm. And you as your kind of absolute panto doyen. Totally. Well, yeah. <laughs> how, how do you get that casting right? And when do you think it goes wrong when people try, I guess it's to get those really big A-list names without thinking what role they're playing? Yeah, the, the, what we always say in the office is, are we casting the panto or are we casting the poster? Mm. And you've got to be very careful. And we are the company, First Family Entertainment, the company that first brought over all the 
big American stars. So, are you the reason I saw Steve Gutenberg in Bromley? Yes, you are. Yes. <laughs> that was so weird. That's so amazing. In Cinderella. Did you exactly. write that Cinderella? I did, yeah. Now, now this is the interesting thing. So Tucker's someone that, if you're listening to this, you've never heard of. Exactly. If you go to Panto, you know who he is because he's one of the great buttons, right? Totally, yeah. Now, it's interesting. I went to see Steve Gutenberg yeah. because I'm a child of the 80s. <laughs> I came away remembering Tucker playing buttons. Yeah. That's the interesting thing, isn't it? Exactly. And that's the key. It's all about, to be honest, we wrote the, that part for Steve Gutenberg because it kind of what fitted him. But Buttons is the main thrust of the story. And Tucker does it ever so well. He's a great comic, but he's also a great storyteller. And so when it comes to those big kind of Hollywood stars, and, yeah. you know, over the last few years, and we've had people like Pamela Anderson come over, haven't we? Was she one of yours as well? Yes, she was. Yeah. And the Hoff. David Hasselhoff, Yeah. yeah. Do they have any idea what Panto is when they agree to do it, or do they just see the paycheck? We uh, send over a little uh, uh, DVD, and we say, this is what it is. If you're playing a baddie, it's good if they boo you, because they don't don't get it. They just don't understand it. Then there'll be times when you encourage them to shout at you. And they go, sorry, what? (laughs) No, honestly, this is good. And once they get it, they really go for it. And one of our beers, we always have, we have a, a casting agent in New York who works for us and, and gets us all these people. But the one that's done most work for us is the Fonz. It's Henry Winkler. Wow. Who uh, came over and did Peter Pan for us one year, played Captain Hook, and just absolutely adored it. And took a, a little while, but eventually got it. And eventually realised that if at one particular exit he stood at the edge and just went, <laughs> the audience would love him for the rest of the show. He didn't quite get that to begin with, had to be convinced. But then he went back to the States and said to people like Priscilla Presley, yeah. you have got to go, you've got to go and do this pantomime. You will have a ball. You will love it. And he has done, done as much work um, as our New York casting agent to get these people to come over. But the thing know. is, I, I suppose if you're performing in Bromley or Wimbledon or somewhere like that, yeah. Cambridge, you can still stay at the Ritz, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I imagine some of these Hollywood stars when they get suddenly finding themselves in, you know, even just the West Yorkshire Playhouse might think, where am I? Uh, There is a bit of that. We did have a Hollywood legend, really. I mean, incredible icon. I still can't quite believe it. We got Mickey Rooney to come over. And the first place we put him was Sunderland. (laughs) Now, I'm not in any way disparaging Sunderland, but Mickey at one point said, so tell me, tell me about this Sunderland, was it? And our boss, to his credit, went, well, Mickey... The clue is in the name, Sunderland. Nah, that sounds great to me. Of course, he got there. It was chucking it down every day and minus four. So he was a bit put out. But yeah, we, we, um, we put people where they're needed, really. And they're happy. They, they're here for the experience and they enjoy it. Now, I'm sorry to make you pick between your favourite children. Uh-oh. But when it comes to the big panto storylines, mm. what's your favourite? And what's the one that, honestly, your heart sort of sinks when you think, Christ, we have to write this one again? <laughs> My favourite is Dick Whittington. Right. um, Because it is a real adventure. There's loads of scope for comedy and everything within that, but it's a real adventure story. It's also a good one for a very selfish reason from the dame. Sarah the Cook is a great dame to play. But. And you've got built in puns with the name. Exactly. Exactly. Loads of Dick (laughs) puns. Not too dirty, just above the heads, Uh but they're there if you want them, you know. But you see, here's the interesting thing it's a great story. It is our most recent build, set-wise, costume-wise. It cost half a million pounds for us to build the set and get all the costumes. They will last us 15 years. We'll get that money back. We're not daft. But it was a huge investment, and that's where the 3D sequence comes in as well. But Walt Disney hasn't done a Dick Whittington. It doesn't sell as well. It doesn't sell as well as Cinderella, Beauty and the Bees. The ones that the kids know, Aladdin, because they've seen the Disney videos... You guaranteed box office. But Dick Whittington, it still sells well, but it's notably down on the ones that the kids know from from Disney. Which is why, in many ways, certainly stuff like um, Puss in Boots and Sinbad and things, which used to be real stalwarts of the Panto calendar, it's what the kids know. And that's what, oh, we'll go and see all that. We don't know what Puss in Boots is about, but in the next town... They're doing Cinderella, so it's worth the extra 15-mile drive. We'll go there. Okay, so you are doing Aladdin this year. We are. Is there a part of you that thinks, okay, it's a big seller, Aladdin, but I've written it ten times before? Uh, well, there, no, there is. You think, okay, right, start again. And I do try and refresh the scripts every year as much as possible. Which is, but that's topical gags, basically. Yeah. Well, it's topical gags and freshing up some of the dialogue. Because you think, oh, God, right, I've heard that. The audience haven't, but I've heard it, yeah. you know, 
for the last five years or whatever. So I think, right, come on, rewrite. And I, I take one subject each year. Last year it was Peter Pan. I thought, right, let's throw that script away and start again. Now, in this instance, the story of Aladdin will always be the story of Aladdin. And it's got to fit the set. So it's got to go in a certain order because that's the set we have in our aforementioned stores in Nottingham. And also, it's got to fit the, the venue. There will be lots of local gags because I think each show has to have a local ownership. If an audience sits there and think, oh, well, that could have been done in Sunderland last year or mm. Brighton next year or whatever, it doesn't feel as if it's their show. So I go to a lot of trouble. I speak a, a lot to the um, marketing departments in each venue. I'll phone up show in Stoke-on-Trent, and I'll phone up the marketing team, who I know there, and say, have they finished the bus station in Hanley yet? And they go, nope, <laughs> right, that's in, good. And they say, oh, but we have got a Starbucks now. We're very, it was a big news in the town, we've got a Starbucks. Right, that's in. Or I'll phone up Aylesbury, and I'll say, how's the ring road coming on? Oh, so I'm right, that, right, that's in. So there's lots of local gags that people are going to get. Then, obviously, you're writing specifically for the casting. Scylla Black, God bless her, mm-hmm. uh, doing a big show in Liverpool a few years ago. Wow, a big name in Liverpool. Oh, me. yeah. We had a fantastic time in Liverpool with that show. She was just phenomenal. Big blind date scene in the middle of it. Right. Of course, was never used anywhere else, but we wrote it for that. We had Les Dennis and, and Ted Robbins and all sorts of people. So a big Liverpool cast, Jennifer Ellison. So you write specifically for your cast. For example, this year, we've got a couple of Cold Feet references in. We've got a couple of Benidorm references in for Sherry. Mm-hmm. So you've got to write specifically for the cast. Ben. I, I remember my first panto that I saw was the woman who played Edith in LOLO. Carmen, Carmen Silvera. Silvera yeah. yeah. Cambridge uh, Theatre, whatever it's called. The Cambridge Arts, Arts Theatre, Theatre yeah. yeah. And the first thing she said when she came on as the fairy godmother yeah. was, well... Hello, hello, as she saw the audience. Round of applause, exactly. immediately. Yeah. It's what they want, isn't it? They want to see what they recognise. <laughs> and if she hadn't done that, yeah. the, some of the audience would have gone away cheated. Yeah, It's like John Inman, of course, started every panto appearance with, I'm free. Yes, get and it out of the way early, get the catchphrases totally. done. Totally, yeah. get them done, tick the box, and the audience can go, right, that's yep. it. <laughs> and it, it, it is the old, we know that you know that we know. Yes, I'm playing a fairy, but if I don't go, it is I, or I shall say this only once, or whatever, yeah. Yeah. the audience feel cheated. And that was the point about the, the Fonz. Uh, Henry, it did take about a week and a half into the run of us going, Henry, trust us, you've got to do a hey. Mm. And he's going, no, 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 I want it's different. I'm playing Captain Hook. Yeah. He's a real, you know, he's from Eton. Yeah. And one day he just tried it, the audience just went absolutely wild for it. And he yeah. came off and he went, now I get it. Now I get it. Yeah. And that's it. Just takes one moment. It's quite a British thing, isn't it? This idea mm. of taking these star names and sort of grounding them. Not only in terms of <laughs> saying, well, we all know you're famous for that advert, so let's see you say, calm down, dear. Exactly. But, but also <laughs> actually saying, whatever you've done in the rest of your career, what you're going to bloody do now is you're going to say, we'll have to do that again then, won't we? Whoops. And yeah. then sing a song by Busted. Yeah. It's something quite... Um, <laughs> I don't want to say it debases people because the, the fun is that they're taking part. Totally. And that's, that's when it works. When you have performers that don't immerse themselves into it, don't buy into the nonsense of whoops, we'll have to sing it again then, yeah. then it, it doesn't work. It doesn't gel. And I'm not going to mention names, but there have been a couple of those over the years. And you just go, oh, if you don't need just... Why do pantos go on into January? What is that about? Christmas is well over. It is. Um, but, and, and this is something that's changed over the years. When I was growing up in Scotland... I can remember the big pantos in Glasgow at the Kings and the Pavilion going on till Easter. They went until Easter, <laughs> literally February, March. But they wouldn't start maybe until Boxing Day or just before Christmas. Now, because of the way commercialisation is going, pantos start much earlier. And the only reason other pantos do go on longer is because the market is there. There is such a number of people who will go. If they weren't selling, the producers wouldn't do them. Uh, But I remember the first time I worked for my current boss, if you like, Kevin Wood, who runs a company we're at for now. Um, I worked for him in Canterbury at beautiful uh, old Marlowe Theatre. And the show, the first year I did, was in Aladdin. And it went on, I think it stopped on the 2nd of February. And I've got to be honest, I was pulling my hair out. You'd wake up, you know, on the 26th of January. Oh, God, there's still another five days. Oh, God, you know. And you literally go, please let it stop. You go into a theatre, there wasn't a seat to be had. 
And you think, okay, these people are here. You do the same show as you did on the, the 8th of December, or whenever you started. Give it with real welly. They absolutely adored it. The Christmas lights have been down for a week. People are planning the summer holidays, and you're still singing the 12 Days of Christmas, or whatever it is. They do it because the market's still there. And you've just got to, you know, it's like some a baker getting up at four o'clock every day of the working life. They don't won't want to do it every morning, but you do it. And when you're there, you actually have a great time because the people you're working for, the audience, are having a great time too. And you also play a dame yeah. that involves cross-dressing. Yeah. I must just ask you, especially for the benefit of our foreign listeners, kind of what you think that's about. Because there's this undercurrent to Panto, which at its best is almost delightfully inclusive and mm. at its worst is almost a little sinister of kind of cross-dressing sort of specifically kind of homosexual innuendo it's a it what is that about in a family show why is there so much cross-dressing and as a dame what do you think in the psyche of the audience you're yeah. doing there uh, well a couple of interesting points there um first of all i mean you could you could go back and do a boring old lecture about the the actual history of it all from the italian commedia dell'arte and then of course when it became pantomime in this country at the theater or drury lane way back at the end of the last century century before that rather when it just happened to be a vehicle for the musical stars of the day and they picked up on the old Commedia dell'arte when it was men playing women you know the, the, as in Shakespeare all the, the women's parts were played by blokes anyway that just carried forward you then if we like jump up to to the modern day and uh, you still very much have the panto dame and that's just a tradition thing so, and you mentioned about homosexual overtones and things and you have I think at least two ways of playing a dame one of which is what I call, a little unkindly, it's perhaps a bit of a harsh phrase, um, what I call the clothes horse, which is the camp, almost drag dame that are there to look good in the frocks. And they do. Mm. I'm thinking along the lines of Danny LaRue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a very successful modern dame called um, Kerry Dupre, who follows in footsteps. Similarly, Chris Hayward, who does Newcastle every year. And they do it very well. But they're there. They, uh, the effect is created by the, the outfits. And literally, that's what, in that instance of a dame, the audience is just supposed to think, God, that's a bloke, but look, he looks amazing. Uh, yeah, okay. exactly. Look at the legs on him. Yeah. You know, and they do all that, and they do it well. And they perform. That sounds very unfair that they're just there, but they look great. Then there's dames like me who are perhaps slightly wide around the middle. <laughs> and I compare myself, people will maybe you know if I say Les Dawson. Yeah. And there's an old phrase, a cock in a frock. Yeah. And that's what we are. We're not trying to be anything rather than a bloke playing a woman. But you ask a six-year-old who was the funniest character, mm. and they'll go, oh, that big woman, mm. and they have no idea. Mm. And it, it, if then there's any kind of homosexual innuendo, then it's done wrong. Mm. I always think a dame, the way I play it, if they were to stand at the front of the theatre at the end of the show, every kid should want to come and give them a, a big hug because they've become their third granny. And they feel safe, and they feel warm, and they feel fond towards them, a fondness towards them. But I think there have been pantos, oh, no, 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 and they put women in as the dame. And you lose a lot of the comedy. There is something funny seeing a man my size with a 48-inch waist coming on, dressed as a woman in ridiculous costumes, trying to flirt with the baddie. And it's not about me as a man trying to have some kind of homosexual affair with the baddie. As far as they're concerned, and as far as I'm concerned, for that two hours, I'm a woman. And I remember my, my youngest daughter, uh, when she first came to see one of the pantos I did years ago, the lovely Coliseum Theatre in Oldham, when I first came on, she turned as a five-year-old to, to a maid and said, that's my daddy. And this, whoever she was talking to, turned to the teacher and went, Miss Isla said that woman's her daddy. And they just buy into that's what it is. You're finding less and less these days uh, having a principal boy as a girl with mm. the fishnet stockings and the knee-high boots and all that. You still get them. And when I first started Panto, I worked with um, a few girls who played principal boy, and they were quite phenomenal at it. They were brilliant. But that's becoming less and less popular. We don't use that anymore. And again, I, I'm just curious about what's going on there in terms yeah. of the origins of it, because that isn't funny. What no. you're doing is usually sexualising the young the, boy. The was the, 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 really, I mean, let's not kid ourselves, in its original form, it was there for, for the dads. That yeah. was something there for the dads. But of course, these days, when you've got Cinderella kissing Prince Charles, 
charming and cries of lesbians coming from eight-year-olds in the circle, you think, no, maybe time to change that. Uh, they're too knowing now. Kids are too knowing. And finally, you, you talked about um, how there are local tropes in terms of references that people yeah. understand. Are there local routines as well? I mean, everywhere does he's behind you. Everyone yeah. does, oh, no, it's not. Are there some that just, you know, only in Newcastle do you hear this particular call and response? Uh, well, yes, yes, there are. And the one that comes to mind is the Theatre Hall York, um, where the, they've had the same name for, oh, crikey, I think it's about 35 years now or something, a wonderful man called Berwick Kyler. And he um, does this whole routine where he throws out wagon wheels uh, to the audience. And there's a whole routine built around that. But if you did it anywhere else, they go, well, well yeah, wagon feels well. But again, it's like everything. If you turn up Theatre Royal York and he doesn't throw up wagon wheels, you're disappointed. Um, so, yes, there are, especially with returning performers. You know, like, for example, Billy Pierce has done the Bradford Alhambra for the last 10 years or whatever. I think it's more than that, actually. I think it's about 15 or something. And he has routines that the audience expect to see because that's what he does every year and they know exactly when they're expected to shout and exactly when they're expected to wave their arms or whatever the routine is. So there are specifics to each area in that way. Something but, quite nice about that, isn't there? It's, yeah. That's the closest thing to a musical tradition that's still alive, really, isn't it? It is. It really is. And that is where it, the local ownership comes in. You go and you think, that's ours. That's yeah, We do that here. You won't get that in Halifax, but you get it in Bradford. Come here, David Hasselhoff, you still won't understand it. Exactly. (laughs) Bless him. Eric Potts there. And you can catch his cock in a frock in Aladdin at the Manchester Opera House until January the 8th. Oh, yes, you can. Christmas. A time to think of others. A time to spread goodwill. A time to consider those less fortunate, those who do not have regular employment, but are forced as freelance podcasters to depend on the charity of strangers and occasionally some money from Squarespace or whatever. These poor individuals make their shows for free and are stupid enough to distribute them for free in the hope that you will give generously. Just £3.31 can buy a podcaster a beer this Christmas. Visit modernman.co.uk and click Beer Money. And consider, whilst you're there, setting up a monthly donation. Because this podcast isn't just for Christmas. We want it to run all year round. Thank you. Well, the weather outside is frightful. But the foxhole is truly delightful. And if you've no place to go, sit here, I'll tell you how to blow. <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, we might as well end there. That, that's, that's the Christmas special. Uh, yes, it's the foxhole with Alex Fox. Before we get going, remind people of our amazing sponsors. The Foxhole is very proudly sponsored by MyCondom.com, who sell a huge range of all sorts of interesting and unusual condoms, uh, including dry, unlubricated variants. What? Well, if you have a particular allergy, or you just don't like the lubricant that that comes on most condoms, then you can buy these ones that have none on whatsoever and add add your your own. own. It's the Smith Salt and Shake of condoms. They are very much so, although Please don't add salt. You, <laughs> if you wish to shake your, uh, your your todger, then that's absolutely fine. Well, thank you to them. And without further ado, it's time to introduce, because every Christmas special has a special guest. Who's at the door? It's me. It's Ollie Pitt. Hello. Literally no expense spared. Ollie is making a return to our Christmas special at the Foxhole at my request, because last Christmas... You memorably gave him a Coca-Cola flavoured condom. Yeah, I can still taste it in my mouth. It hasn't left. That was a year ago. I think watching Ollie Peer eat a Coca-Cola flavoured condom was my favourite moment of 2015. I'm just wondering if we can better it at all now. I might be about to up the ante. I thought today we could play a miniature version of my stand-up comedy sex ed show, Tippity Doodah. I've brought along... Two male masturbators. One is in the shape of Lily LeBeau's pussy. Just to be She's clear, yeah, this is a product, if you're listening. It's not a person. No, it's, it's, the, <laughs> it's a silicone... Bring in the male masturbators. <laughs> <laughs> How much are we paying them for the hour? An entire team of them. <laughs> they are silicone casts of famous porn stars' genitals. So we have Lily LeBeau's foof mm-hmm. and uh, Christina Rose's ass... 
And inside each of these beautifully gelatinous orifices, there are a number of little slips. I want you to pick out a slip of paper and then I'll give you a tip. So be- pick a slip, I'll give you a tip. It's yeah. like a really disgusting fortune cookie. Just have a, I've never, have a feel. Yeah. They're made of uh, I, cyber skin. So I, they're this, designed- is, this is what they sound like up against the mic, listeners. Ooh. Well, you if you on? shake them... Oh. oh, God. What? How much can you get for licensing your genitals? Uh, it depends on how famous you are and... Um, Not worry. Oh, it's a shame, <laughs> what can I get? Well, actually, Ollie, if you did want to make a cast of your genitals for your loved one, you can mm. get a thing called Clone a Willy, uh, where you can actually make a dildo out of your dong. Oh. Uh, and you can even get um, chocolate variants and glow-in-the-dark variants. Wow. So how does this game work, Alex? For a start, you have to pick whether you would like to select a slip from the ass mm. or the pussy. Pink or brown? Oh. Pink or brown, Ollie. Uh, I'll go Hammersmith and City, please. <laughs> okay, if you could just insert your digits yeah. into my silicone genitals. Oh, I'm really. Oh, his technique's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. I'm going straight in there. I'd be more gentle. You do look like usually. you're getting something out. If oh. you could just, if you could just, okay. just extricate a slip for me and read what it says on that piece of paper. Okay. It says. Uckers. Uckers. Okay. Over the summer, I worked with some young men in Hackney teaching them some sex education information, but they also taught me some new terminology. Uh, one of the words that I picked up... <laughs> it's like up, Dead Poet Society, isn't it? <laughs> one of the words that they taught me was uckers. Mm. Can you guess what the word uckers means? Underarm fuck. Ooh, that's a good guess, Ollie. That is, good guess. That's a spectacular guess. Yes. And right? also now I have a vision in my mind that I cannot rid myself of. <laughs> It's Says the woman right. who's holding a silicon arsehole. I just think it's interesting that that's the first thing that sprung to our no, it, It's not that I'm thinking of that. It's just that the word sort of brings up that picture in my it's mind. It's quite onomatopoeic. Is it like just gloopy sex? Keep saying the word. Uh, oh, is it oh. making someone sick with your penis? Uckers is the word for blowjob, and it's called uckers because the girl goes uck, uck, uck. When oh, okay. so your penis is hitting the back reflex. of her throat. Yeah. I don't have that problem. Delightful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do have the problem, though, of selecting a slip of paper, either from my foof or my log flume exit. Which oh. one would you like to go for, Ali? Well, I'll go for the bum. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. It's like putting my hand in a bowl of offal. <laughs> Why is there black powder in my pants? Why is there black powder in my pants? This is one of the most memorable and uh, unusual questions that I was asked this year. Are all of these just going to be prompts for you to tell an anecdote in the Barry Cryer doing an audience Q&A style? It's a summary of my 2016, Ollie. I'm on board with it. I love it. Well, what do you think was the answer to why there was black powder in somebody's knickers? Uh, dry flakes of blood. Someone tried to fuck Guy Fawkes. Neither of those things is right. Ollie, you're really... Ollie P, you are successfully grossing me out, which is it's quite a difficult thing to do. Is it pant fluff scratched from your bum? No, but scratching does have something to do with it. This question came to me from somebody who has quite pronounced psoriasis, so they tend to itch all over anyway. Itching for them is a daily, normal part of life. So when they contracted uh, a sexually transmitted problem the itching that most people would usually uh, note as different to them uh, was par for the course and they they didn't realize that anything was wrong uh, until black powder started to appear in the gusset of their their pants what it was was that they had contracted pubic lice they'd got crabs that they'd not noticed and the black powder was actually the droppings of the pubic lice. Wow. Crab dumps. It was crab dumps. It was crab, crab craps. Yeah. You've grossed me out now. Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, that's a very easy to uh, fix problem. You can just apply an insecticide to your undercarriage, essentially. Uh, interestingly, you can also, if you're a very pale-skinned person, crabs can give you uh, very uh, tiny blue dots all over your thighs, which is where they bite you uh, and suck your blood out. But if, you, if you're if you translucent of skin, you can end up looking like a little speckled sparrow's egg. I have a question. Yes. Why do crabs hang around your genitals? It's really warm for a start. Um, there's lots and lots of blood flow there. 
uh, so it's easy for them to feed. And also it's a great way of being passed on to another host um, because when you have sex and your pubic hair is brought together, then the crabs can jump ship onto a new exciting cruise liner. Mm. Um, however, it is possible to get crabs uh, elsewhere on your body. If you're a particularly hirsute man, they, they can um, essentially climb on up your treasure trail, live in your chest hair, and there have been cases of people having pubic uh, lice in their eyebrows and even eyelashes. <laughs> Thankfully, that's uncommon in the Western world because we tend to treat the problem before it develops to that degree. Moving on, Ollie Man, it's your turn to pick a slip from the slit. Vice Pops. Oh, this is quite a nice one. Is it people putting um, breakfast cereal in their snatch? <laughs> no, that's Rice Cracksbees. Um, <laughs> Vice Pops is quite a nice uh, top tip for summer. You can buy wooden lolly sticks on their own, write in biro something lovely that you'd like to try out with your partner, then turn them into ice lollies. You can make adult G&T flavoured ice lollies if you, if you like. Then your partner just has to pick out any of those ice lollies, eat them, give you a lovely chilled, frosty kiss, read what it says on the lolly stick, and then that's what you have to do that evening. So that's a Vice Pop. Very good, isn't it? Until the kids go rummaging around in the freezer. <laughs> keep, keep those particular lollies away from the kids. Yeah. Mum, what's this joke? <laughs> Would you like to delve into one of my orifices? Yeah, I'm Ollie not doing P. the bum again, though, because okay. I've done that one. That's all right. oh, well, don't you have to stick you to your preference? Oh, OK. I don't have to... St- what boring sex life you have. All right. Ollie P can dip himself into whichever hole he wants, as long as he has my consent. Sex granules. What I have here, chaps is a a small tester packet of one of my favourite new sexual products of the year. Can you guess what it is and what it does? And I'm going to open up the packet and let you have a smell. Don't worry, it's not drugs. Oh, oh, it does smell revolting. (laughs) I bet it's not supposed to put you off. No, it smells like... It's not supposed to put you off. (laughs) Oh, it's not an unpleasant smell. It is. Oh, it's quite, it's, it's quite not a sex smell, I wouldn't say that. That doesn't no, smell like someone's privates. It smells, it smells clinical. It smells clinically. No, it smells herby. It smells like um, a seasoning. Do you think this might be sex seasoning? <laughs> then in, <laughs> just sprinkle it on. Salt, pepper, sex seasoning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally comes in a grinder. Yes, yes. No, yes. what this is, is a new product called Sloob. Sloob. And what you do is, with your standard size packet, you would run a bathtub of water, and I've brought along a glass of water, this now feels like a chemistry experiment at school. And if you just pour the granules in yeah. and mix it around, what <laughs> it does is it turns it into coloured, slimy lubricant. Yeah, and you can make an entire bathtub full of slube. And it comes in different colours and flavours and smells, so you can get black leather-scented slube slime lube. You can get red strawberry-scented. You can get yellow custard-scented slime. Uh, and then when you're done with it, it just uh, goes down the plug hole as usual. Which so would all make sense for- if your most harboured sexual fantasy was to fuck a tortoise. But why would you... <laughs> Want this particularly slimy goop around like your teenage minja Nugent turtles? <laughs> <laughs> that is green. It looks like frog water. Well, I think this is designed for people who want to have some kind of like uh, alien themed or Ghostbusters themed right. uh, sci-fi fantasy. Fuck. Okay, okay yeah. so it's the Ghostbusters yeah. fetishist. Yeah. Fine, so long as we're clear. But it's loads of fun. It's really slippery it, it, it and does slimy. Look fun. You can fill a paddling pool with it as well. Time for Ollie Pitt to put his finger in. It, look, it looks like sex bisto. <laughs> you know, like, you're just thickening it up. How does it feel, Ollie? Like, it feels like, it does feel like a, a, just a Johnny, just a wet Johnny. That's horrible. Imagine being in a bathtub of warm, custard-scented, yellow lubricant like that and wrestling with your partner in it. No, I think it's so much fun. I'll be trying fun. to get out. I'll be trying to get out. But it's not nice. Well, this has been enlightening, Alex. Uh, I guess there's not really a winner... No one wins here. <laughs> no, I've, I feel like I've lost. I don't have times. slime lube on my fingers, so no. I consider myself you're, the winner of you are Tippity both, Doodah. You're both winners of Tippity Doodah because yeah. you're going away with more knowledge. Absolutely. Or at least some anecdotes that you can impart to other people. I think it's fair to say probably most listeners aren't going to be uh, putting this knowledge into practice this evening. So if you do have a sort of Christmassy sex tip for our seasonal foxhole, Alex, what would it be? Actually, a good one is get lusty with leftovers. And by that, I don't mean, like, stick a roast potato up your asshole or, like, <laughs> wank, off, wank off with some gravy or something. Okay, what, that would be good. what do you mean? <laughs> well, I think a lot of people...
people during the year tend to do things like they'll read a sex tip and they'll think, oh, I must, I must try that. But then they forget or they buy a set of massage oils, use them once and then they get left in the bedside cabinet. Yes. Or they order a toy, it comes with something free and exciting. Or they go to mycondom.com and order a load of different condoms and Using don't get around to try Using the discount code Foxhole for 15% yeah. off. Yep. If you're feeling a bit skint at this time of year, mm. which a lot of people are, you don't necessarily have to in- invest in new expensive sex toys or products or whatever. I would say go back and see what's left over in your bedside cabinet or think about things that you've intended to do during the year but haven't got round to. During the Christmas holidays where people have ideally got a little bit of time off work, it's the ideal time to work, to reinvestigate and revisit those those ideas from 2016. Bedside cabinets bring clean. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Except you're yeah. making it sound positive. I always get very depressed. I always find condoms that expired two years ago that never got used. <laughs> Another time we can talk about all the ways that you can still use out-of-date condoms oh, to do helpful things. I, you've teased our way into 2017 already. I've teased my way throughout 2016, I hope. Have an amazing Christmas. Get festive. Or alternatively, Ollie P, get festive. It's disgusting. Well, that is nearly it for this year's worth of Modern Man, but there is just time to anoint a new manbassador. It is Gozi in Nigeria. Uh, I wanted to say something amusing in Nigerian to thank you, Gozi. Then I looked into it and realised that the official language of Nigeria is actually English. Uh, never mind. Uh, you can be a manbassador too. Just go to itunes.com slash man, M-A-N-N, and leave us a review. Our theme music is by Django Django off their first album, still available to purchase due to the low production costs associated with the internet. And hold your loved ones close, because this is our song to close 2016. It's called Honest, it's by Martha Gunn, and you should go buy it now. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you for our season finale a week Tuesday. Your pride will surely take a blow Especially from ones you know Is it time to start again? Trimming down your fingernails Bereavement of a friend A version of yourself Naturally came to So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.